The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew. Jesus said to the crowds, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which someone has found. He hides it again, goes off happy, sells everything he owns, and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he finds one of great value, he goes and sells everything he owns and buys it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea that brings in a haul of all kinds. When it is full, the fishermen haul it ashore. Then sitting down, they collect the good ones in a basket and throw away those that are no use. This is how it will be at the end of time. The angels will appear and separate the wicked from the just to throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and grinding of teeth. Have you understood all this? They said, yes. And he said to them, well then, every scribe who becomes a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his storeroom things both new and old. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Girls and boys who are preparing for your first communion, can you just give me a bit of a wave so I can see you out in the in the ocean of people here? Here you are. You know, we're praying for you as you prepare for this sacrament because the church doesn't hesitate to say this is the source and summit of the Christian life, which means in a way you're approaching the very height of of the Catholic life. You know, the very we're touching upon something very profound and, and because we do it every Sunday, maybe we forget just how profound it is, but it's very profound indeed. We're praying for all of you as you prepare. While I'm making eye contact with all of you, um, can you tell me, do you believe in heaven? Is that something that you believe in? Yes? There's no shaking of heads? No. Okay, there's yes. And, and, and in heaven, there's a kind of picture of other heavenly things, like angels, for example. Do you believe in angels? Right? I think you have to believe in angels because if you don't, you have to throw out so much of the Gospels. I remember hearing about a priest who, um, you know, sometimes you come across these people who are so learned that they've sort of graduated from faith and they just operate with reason now. It's a very sad thing when you see it. And this priest did not believe in angels. And he was giving a talk on how, no, they're just, it's just a metaphor. (laughs) And it's like, okay, so who spoke to Mary when she conceived? Um, Who spoke to Zechariah when he was in the temple? Who was standing outside the tomb when... They looked for the risen Jesus and he wasn't there, but there were these two men. You know what I mean? The whole story falls apart if you take out these essential elements that we have to believe in. I'll say one last thing. As children, young friends, it's sort of easy to believe these things. It's easier when you're a child. Maybe that's why Jesus said, the kingdom belongs to you. Once we grow up, I don't know what happens, but we need to be on guard against it. Our our belief is like too smart. We lose, we lose the core of what we're actually doing here. Okay, so today, obviously, we come to the end of the parables where Jesus is giving metaphor after metaphor after metaphor of the kingdom of God, that is to say, of heaven. And, and as I keep saying, there's a reason he gives these images that don't quite fit together. Like, it's not the same image seven times. It's, they're all strange images. And these last three, in a way, are... Well, I won't say they're the most profound, but they're, they're very profound. 
Here's the thing. I think if we admit it, all of us are following um, the light that we've sensed in the world. This is like a basic intuition, you know? You don't need to read the Bible to have a sense of what the good is. Every single person everywhere, hopefully, is intuitively seeking the good. They're intuitively trying to do the good in the world. Whether or not they know how to anchor it, whether or not there's a whole lot of sophisticated philosophy underneath it, this is like a primal desire of the heart. This is the heart God gave us, a heart that longs for him. As Augustine famously said, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. We just go searching until we find it. Um, the tragedy is that the world is full of, well, let's say, I don't want to put too dark of a spin on it, but the world is full of counterfeits, whether there's malice involved or not. Um, we live in a very economic age, you know? And if I can find something that's equivalent to the good thing, but it's cheaper, why wouldn't I go for the cheaper one? You know what I mean? This is a problem for us. Spiritually, it's a problem. Because actually, heaven is not about getting a good deal. Heaven is about losing everything for the sake of one thing. It's a kind of economic insanity. That's what we're being invited to. Children find it easy to do that. We don't, because we've been schooled by the world that just doesn't operate that way. How is the kingdom found then? These three parables are interesting because the person, which is really all of us, finds the kingdom in, in three separate ways. It might be all of us on our journeys. The first one is like someone who's working in a field. He's busy with his occupation, sweating, uh, trying to make everything grow, trying to reap a good harvest. And in and amongst his work, he stumbles upon this treasure, this, this lost thing of incredible value. And he's so gobsmacked that he buries it again, runs away, buys the field, and now he possesses everything because he's, he's stumbled upon something worth forsaking everything for. The second parable is different. The merchant didn't stumble upon a pearl. No, by contrast, the merchant is very intently searching for pearls of good price, for, for goodly pearls, it says. That's us. We're looking for everything. And, and once we find a whole lot of things, we can sort of prioritize them, can't we? Whether we do it purposely or not, we're going to do that. We're going to put some things higher than others. We're going to put some relationships higher than others, some possessions higher than others, some projects higher than others, some risks are more urgent to deal with than others, etc., etc. Okay. And as he's finding all of these pearls, he finds the singular pearl of great price. <clears throat> when he finds this pearl, something happens whereby his search, instead of trying to go everywhere, he hones in on a singular target. And, and we see this. We see it in the writings of Paul, where Paul says, you know, I was a faithful Jew. I knew the law. I followed it perfectly. Very few people could say that, but Paul dared to say it. He says, you measure me against the law. <laughs> Tell me where I slipped up. He was, he was perfect legalistically. But when he discovers the pearl who is Christ, he says, I consider my obedience to the law really a waste of time. Um, it's rubbish to me now. Not in and of itself, but in contrast 
to Christ. Everything else is, is kind of rubbish. Are you familiar with the story of St. Thomas Aquinas, who obviously is such a celebrated theologian in our church, and Thomas wrote what we now call the Summa Theologia, the, the Summary of Theology. Beautiful document. For many centuries, it was the document. You know, It was kind of like a catechism, kind of like an introduction to the faith, even though it's pretty, you, know, you want to put on your thinking cap when you read it, but it's an introduction to the, to the Christian faith. He never finished the work. It's an unfinished work that the church has in its heritage. Why? Because as the story goes, Thomas was in prayer in a chapel that was alone and the sacristan was busy, you know, just like Mercy Duncan over here is busy, um, you know, setting up the altar and whatnot. And he hears two voices. And, and one voice says, Thomas, you've written well of me. You've served me well. What will you have as your reward? It's a bit like that encounter with Solomon in the first reading, isn't it? What will you have? And Thomas famously says, uh, I'm going to have to remember the Latin now, non ne nisite domine, which means nothing except for you, Lord. Nothing except for you. Please, that's all I want. You. When he came out of his prayer, the sacristan said, who are you talking to? And he, and he, and he says, I was speaking with my Lord, and all of my occupations now seem like so much straw. His great theological work that we, that we rightly prize, that we rightly return to regularly, he says, this is so much straw. It does nothing to communicate actually what I've encountered. It barely, it barely catches a glimpse of the one who I now possess. So I discard it. Amazing, isn't it? And there, are, and there are many such stories like this from our saints and from ourselves, saints in the making. I think that brings us back to um, Solomon, and I'll mention him just a moment before returning to the third parable. Solomon <clears throat> is celebrated in a way in this reading. It says the Lord was pleased with his request because he could have asked for anything. Think of this, by the way. He's the new king in a relatively small kingdom in a relatively chaotic time. And there's other neighboring kingdoms who are bigger and who are meaner. And Solomon ought to play his cards well, otherwise uh, Israel might just be swallowed up in the mix. But he doesn't say, Lord, make Israel's army powerful, you know? Fortify our cities. Give us lots of wealth so that we can, you know, do what we need to. Etc., etc. All, all, the, all the things of value, they're good pearls in the world. He doesn't ask for that. He asks for wisdom. I love the, the, the Latin of the word wisdom. The Latin word is sapientia, which refers to taste. You know, the person who is wise can sort of taste goodness. Beyond their head knowledge, there's a, there's a sensory affirmation. That's good. That's why we can sort of train our palate for things that are always the better. That's why it's so dangerous to sort of keep lesser things in our periphery because it distorts our taste. We start to become unwise. Anyway, this is a little passage that celebrates something good that Solomon did, but sadly it wasn't perfect. And, and none of the patriarchs are. David, Solomon, all these people from our past. We celebrate them, we look to them, but none of them were Christ, were they? Um, Solomon asks for wisdom. A tremendous gift which kind of comically and tragically, ends up leading him astray. 
Do you know how Solomon's story finishes? He builds the temple. Uh, he, he, he shows his great wisdom in his judicial sort of practices with people who are having quabbles in his kingdom. Um, but eventually he, he gets a bit too crafty. He says, yeah, I'm going to secure Israel's place in the mix by sowing treaties with this kingdom. I'll marry that. He had like, I can't remember how many wives, but he had lots and lots and lots of wives, like in the triple digits. <laughs> uh, and, and, and he would say it was for political security, okay? So that's his story. Um, his wisdom got the better of him. You know what I mean? His wisdom became really an idol. This is the danger. God offers us gifts and we receive them, but if they're divorced from him, they become the enemy of him. All our gifts are like rubbish if they disallow us from possessing the one who desires to possess us. So finally we come to the third parable, the dragnet. I think this is one of my favorites because it's such a it's such an overwhelming image, you know? God throws this gigantic cosmic net over the whole universe. And everyone gets caught in that. We know God's grace is for the wicked and the, and the righteous. It's for the ignorant and for the learned. It's for everyone. Jesus on the cross is for literally everyone. There's not a single person who Christ was not gazing at when he hung upon the cross. He did it for them. And Augustine says, if Christ lived in a universe of two and there was only him and you, he would have still gone to the cross because that's how he demonstrates his love. He's God who is, to say the least, the great pearl. But, but the crazy irony is he treats us like the pearl of great price. He says, you, I've found you. I will forsake everything that I would possess you. How humbling is that? It's, it, 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 it's incredible. Like We all ought to just weep when we think of the value God puts on us. The parable ends on a hard note because it says all of everyone is going to be dragged to the shore and then the angels will separate the fish that are good from the fish that are not good. Again, this shouldn't be a source of anxiety because that wouldn't have been Matthew's intention. He's not trying to say, hey, make sure you're good fish. In a way, that's, that's implicit, isn't it? But it's more a sense of hope that while we toil in a world that is so mangled up as ours, it's got so many mixed cacophonous voices shouting across each other, shouting through each other. It's most definitely a mixture of good fish and bad, of wheat and weeds, of sheep and goats, of all, of all the classic scriptural images we've had. That's our world. The assurance that Christ gives here in the end of the parable is that even this can be disentangled. God will in fact draw us to himself because he's capable of doing that. We're all gathered now to come to the sacrament of sacraments, to, to the banquet of the Lamb. The one who sets us on our search, the one who we stumble across, the one who gathers us in, he now calls us to dine with him, placing before us things that are old and new, placing before us all the gifts he's given, all the gifts we've received, but most especially placing before us his very self, his heart laid open where the kingdom of God is to be found in its fullness.